So we were talking about Srimad Bhagavatam and its significance in light of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance. <clears throat> so we'll begin discussing the first verse. The first verse is one of three introductory verses that constitute a, a um, showing of regard or respect to the deity of the book, presiding over the book in the first verse and the second verse is a kind of a condensed uh, explanation of the essence of the, the tattva of, of the book and the third is a a verse in which a blessing is offered. We call these technically the Namaskar and Vastunyadesh and the uh, Ashurvad verses of the Bhagavatam. So, very nice verses and um, well known with multiple meanings. And these three then are followed by the beginning of uh, the um, narration of the conversation between the sages assembled at Naimisharanya and Sutta Goswami. And that will take us uh, up through the end of the first canto. Um, and all of that is more or less a prelude to the explanation of the setting in which Sutta Goswami heard the Bhagavatam himself. He was in the assembly when the boy Sukadev spoke to the Raj, Maharaj Parikshit. So that part. This canto ends with beginning description of of uh, Sukadev and the story of, of how the king was cursed and uh, destiny brought the two together. And then, as I've said earlier, as Sukadev begins to speak, the conversation weans, weaves in and out of explanations and stories within those explanations and questions and answers within those explanations. We'll come back a little bit again to Sutra Goswami speaking. and So there are many conversations going on. One of the interesting things that Shijiva Goswami brings out, I believe in his Krishna Sandarbha, is that all the principal speakers in the Bhagavatam. Sutta Goswami, Sugadeva Goswami, Nard is the principal's principal speaker, Maitreya and others and so forth in different conversations. They're all uh, devotees of Krishna. Jiva Goswami has very wonderfully explained the Bhagavatam and his uh, Satsandarbha. His Krishna Sandarbha is particularly wonderful. In this connection, it's again what he's done is, uh, with regard to the point I just mentioned, is which is rather characteristic of our lineage. Uh, this was, of course, in the, at the time of the inception of the lineage. He um, and others like him, Sanatan and so forth, Goswami, they explain the Bhagavatam in a way that's very. It makes so much sense that you wonder how it could have been explained otherwise, almost. For example, a little later on in this, this canto in chapter 7, we find a conversation between uh, between Sutta Goswami, in the context of that conversation in this canto of Sutta Goswami, and the sages assembled at Naimisharanya, there's the history of the Bhagavatam itself, in terms of its being manifest by Vyas and um, the trance, the spiritual trance of Vyas that gave rise to the writing of the book as it is, is described. So Jiva Goswami in his Sandarva says that if we want to understand the Bhagavatam, well, we'll just go here. We'll look at the Samadhi, the trance, the inner experience, of the author that gave rise to it. And when you hear something like that, you just think, well, what else, how else would you do it? You know, I mean, the book says that Vyas sat in trance, he realized uh, 
certain things, and he came out, and basically this is the explanation of his trance in about seven verses. And uh, But no one has ever, no other commentator or any reader of the Bhagavatam or lover of the Bhagavatam has ever come up with such an explanation. So you really, if you study the works of the Goswamis, which are all wonderful, and uh, but all really um, orbit around the hub of Srimad Bhagavatam, you see to what extent they embraced as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu did the Bhagavatam as the very life, their heart, and so forth. So, And then, of course, as I said, they've reasoned well as to why that's the most important, the revealed texts, and so forth, and so on. So we're in good hands with the, the Goswamis, is the idea. So, first verse, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So the yeah, the author offers his respect, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. And the first word, Om, is, of course, the kind of the considered the primal sound, the original sound from 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 God to to us, so to speak, and, and outreach through sound. Pujapachita Marsh like to describe the Om as a big affirmation, a big yes. And so what is what's the question? That the absolute is giving a yes. Om what's the question? <laughs> so the question is is that really which arises naturally in human society, the question about possibilities, the question that arises, I mean to say, as consciousness in human form of life has, in that form, I don't want to say evolved, but um, it is better suited in, in, in an appropriate, in, in a vehicle that affords it some understanding of itself. If matter kind of the form of in the in the form of ignorance our, our our identification with matter in the form of attachment is a kind of ignorance that in effect covers the soul. Nothing really covers the soul but ignorance is a problem. So under that ignorance in our which constitutes our attachment we labor under the oppression of material demands, the demands of the mind, the senses, attraction to the sense objects, and so forth. So, again, in human form of life, that labor is is less. Intelligence is is more developed. We can think about the fact that we exist, and so forth. So, all these this uh, human life is affording this kind of freedom of the self. Consciousness is in all forms of life. But in human form of life, it's, it's a vehicle where, where it is that's uh, more suitable to, for consciousness to express and understand itself. So, we have this sense in human life that all there's all all possibilities, and this sense doesn't arise in the less complex forms of life. So, um, that's kind of the the question. Is it, I feel I feel I can. Be, you can almost like the humans are like the gods on earth. Even in science, you know, it's considered like this. We're the gods. We can re- tamper with the nature of nature now, and uh, uh, and so forth. So this comes expresses itself in secular society, you follow as well, and in the uh, spiritual circles. This is our explanation. The self has is not limited by the possibilities, or the uh, by the, the self is not limited by material circumstances, which seem to say, to the contrary of the own, no. It's like I said, when you're a child, you feel like you know you're growing up that you can do anything, and you're constantly being told by others who have for years been beaten by material nature. Uh, struggle to to conquer her. No, you can't. No, you can't. Grow up, and you you you, you, you know, be realistic. You know, the child wants to do anything and everything. Why not? All possibilities. But he or she gets beaten by material, beaten down by material nature. So there's this 
conflict, where the soul is coming out and feeling it shouldn't be limited. There should be uh, no, not, the word impossible shouldn't be in the dictionary, but material nature is coming back and expressing, no, you're confined, you're limited, there are only so many possibilities and so forth. So, whereas in the less complex forms of life, that material nature is speaking more uh, louder. Here the self is speaking loud enough to reply back and, 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 and resist the force of nature and the, uh, the, uh, the limitations that it, it um, the no that it says to us. But on the other side, our friend, the absolute, is giving a guess. Oh, yes, what you feel, what you sense in this human form of life is possible because you're coming out now from within the womb of material nature. You're actually starting to think about yourself, all that you are and all that you could be. This is why then, for example, in the Upanishads, you find statements in which the self is seems to be one with God. And so, someone can take that and make a philosophy out of it, as some have, that that we are all the gods, we are all, it's all, there's one soul, and we are all covered by matter, so we think ourselves different. Remove the covering of matter, we'll find ourselves to be consciousness, we're all consciousness. In that sense, we're all God. So the Upanishads make statements like that. There, but the idea behind them, if we follow that, those teachings out, and especially as they're played out in full in Srimad Bhagavatam, we find the initial kind of idea that comes from that to be nuanced. And uh, the purpose behind such statements is to say that, there, that as God has all possibilities, satya-sankalpam, whatever God wants, is. We, we feel like whatever we want should be too, in a sense. We want to do whatever we want, whenever we want. That's what we want to do. But we keep finding, we feel that should be possible, and material nature keeps telling us, no, it's not possible, it's not possible. Because of our likeness, the idea is to God, because we are not matter, actually, we're consciousness. And in the realm of consciousness, the limitations that matter imposes upon us uh, don't exist, uncovered, unfettered by matter. So there's a likeness to us and God. But of course, the nuanced understanding that follows if we pursue the understanding of this Eastern Revelation comprehensively is the, as it comes out in Sumit Bhagavatam, is that while there's a likeness, there's a difference. And that's why we're in this present situation where we sense we could be more than we are, but we're uh, sometimes give in to the no of material nature. No, you can't. And we settle for less than uh, what human life really affords us, the opportunity. It's a very, in that sense, you see this Vedanta is a, is a, it's a very nice explanation, this of course, I'm developing it. This idea that Om is a yes is a uh, it's, it, it speaks of the how of how um, you said, how positive is the Vedanta. It's often thought of as being a bit pessimistic with its doctrines of karma and destiny and and the gunas and so forth. These things seem to speak about limitations and, and, uh, um, and, and indeed material life is rather um, the more the more you become absorbed in it the more deterministic it becomes words, the, the less your freedom the, your unit of freedom of choice of will but the more you become absorbed in material nature having made choices in that direction the more your life just becomes really like matter like an automaton, like with no will, 
deterministic and, uh, and uh, not free to make choices, you understand? The more you absorb yourself in matter, the more it becomes, the less your choices are, the less freedom you have, and so forth. And so we talk about, in Vedanta, we talk about that aspect of life, and you start to talk about it, and it sounds like, that's pretty pessimistic, that's pretty... <laughs> but it's very realistic also. But that's not, again, the whole story. Darwinian evolution seems rather pessimistic to me, you know, the, the, uh, the philosophizing that it comes out of some empiric findings that lead to the conclusion that some kind of evolution is, is, is going on, some kind of biological evolution is going on. It's a rather, at the bottom line, it seems rather pessimistic. You know, one living being is food for another. Uh, this is also a huge theme in the Bhagavatam. The struggle for existence is described like that. Jivo jivasya jivanam. So, I mean, you, it, it's not, there's not any more pessimistic than, than, than the Darwinian kind of uh, outlook on life, which made him very pessimistic. He, he said he lost interest in art and music and meaning and, and so forth and so on. So, of course, people maybe create their relative meanings within that these days and philosophize about it. But the point being here is that whatever is said there it's also said in the Bhagavatam, in effect, in essence, isn't it? About the nature of material existence. It's rather brutish. One living being is food for another. It's a struggle for existence. And again, the more we become absorbed in that, the less free we are. The more the soul that is the self, the consciousness that animates the whole show, goes to sleep. And all that becomes apparent in terms of actions is the biological and neurological functioning and so forth. The Gita says it's something like this, prakriti kriyamanani gunai karmani sarvasa ahankara vimudatma kartahamiti manyate. Hmm? He says, the wise person knows that only the modes of nature are acting. Self is doing nothing. Witness <coughs> like I've given an example, we turn on the television, so then they turn it on, then you become overwhelmed by the television. You forget that you can get up and, and leave. And somebody has to come and pull you away from there. And then the television's going, and, and we, 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 you know, so people look inside. We talk about the viewer. People look inside for the viewer. They can't find him anywhere in there because he's actually separate from the television. And he's just a witness. He did something with a little little bit of will, and the whole show came on. And then we're looking for him in the show. We can't find him because he just witnessed something that he set in motion, identified with, and it's that machine has just taken over. So we can't find him. So we're not so far apart, except that that's not the be-all and end-all of the Vedanta philosophy, that is the one side about it, which talks about material nature in such a way as to provide us some negative impetus to move in the direction of the of the positive outreach of the absolute, the big Om, yes, come to me. Hmm. With open arms, something like this. This Om is very all encompassing and uh, affectionate, positive. So Vedanta is not at all um, pessimistic. I'll give you another example. My younger brother once, in trying to catch up with me, who was disappeared from home for you know many, many years in, in pursuit of all these things many, many years ago, came to a temple and uh, I had been there and so some of the other devotees were explaining to him the philosophy. And I've told you this before, some of you might have heard it, but he said, when I heard the philosophy for a couple hours, I felt as if the life that I had been painting for myself on a canvas with watercolors 
was all being washed away by the water of their words. In other words, my material pursuits all became meaningless. It's rather like, kind of like, wow, it's kind of depressing. I was going to do this, I was going to do that, and you guys are telling me it's all, you know, illusion. <laughs> but he couldn't, you know, he couldn't defeat it either. So that's like the negative side. It's like, it starts to sound pretty negative, but if you look closely, it's, it's actually very positive because it's pulling you out from that negativity. It's acknowledging you're absorbed in a very negative kind of a situation. Karma, the realm of karma is, is negative numbers, as I've said before. In other words, the more you move, the more you become in debt. So the more you go in from zero to, to negative numbers, we want to go into positive numbers. So this is the OM. 108 numbers, you know, it's offering, it's come. So, this whole Bhagavatam, then, is because it begins with the Pranava Omkar, and, and incidentally, Krishna identifies himself with the Om in the Gita, he says, of syllables, I am the Pranava Omkar. So, it's a, it's a sound, it's kind of the sound of Krishna, if you will other than his flute, just his sound. That's a pretty interesting idea. That We all have a sound, I suppose, but we don't... We must have listened to the sound of our mind, but his sound is just positive, accommodating, and, 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 and speaking to us about our possibilities because of our likeness to the Godhead, being consciousness, as the Godhead is consciousness. We're the spark, he's the fire, but the spark, if it falls on, on, on the rock, practically, it, it can go out for all intents and purposes. Analogy doesn't follow so, because the spark actually does go out, of course, but we don't. But um, it gets pretty dark out there <laughs> for, for, for some. So, so anyway, this, this is how Krishna sounds. He sounds very positive. <laughs> very accommodating. Om has been identified with him. And the whole book, then, is an explanation of this this Om. So it's an ex- extremely positive um, uh, kind of love letter from, from, from above to us, in which, as I said before, so much of the, of the Godhead is revealed by, by himself, uh, so much about himself, which makes it then such so inviting, so 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 charming. So this is again explanation of Om. It's very positive. It's a yes. It's very uh, Krishna is uh, the name Krishna means all attractive here. Om namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Vasudevaya means it, that is the name for Krishna, the son of Vasudev. Of course, it's said in the Puranas that Nanda. Maharaj, the father of Krishna, in Vrindavan, according to the Leela, it would appear as if as he was a, was a stepfather. Krishna appears to have been born from Devaki and Vasudeva in Mathura, but it's said in the Purana that Vasudeva is another name for Nanda. So the Godias naturally found that verse, and, and it, which is pretty obscure, I would imagine, and and. Uh, and so they like to say, Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya means Om, you know, and all of its implications. And I offer my regard to the, to, 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 to the Godhead, Bhagavate, who is the son of Nanda, means Krishna. Krishna is also the son of Vasudev. That's in his, his Mathura Leela and, and his uh, Dwaraka Leela. He's looked like that. Uh, viewed like that by different devotees with different sentiments and so forth. But the full uh, the intimate circle of Krishna, of course, is in Vrindavan, where Nanda and Yashoda appear as his mother and, and father. So, here the great Srimad Bhagavatam opens with this Om and respect to, to Krishna. That's what this book is about. There are many, many sounds. Pujapadrita Marsh described the Vedas as a jungle of sounds, revelation. And to sort them all out is very difficult. Bhagavatam has done that for us in a very wonderful way with emphasis on this one sound of two syllables, Krishna. 
Rupa Goswami writes in his Namastakam that this, these two syllables have so much light and they're so luminous in them, so comprehensively enlightening in their power and potential if we take advantage of them, that they're, that the other powerful and positive statements of the Upanishads, like Ahambramasmi, Tattvamasi, and so forth, they're all like jewels themselves, but they're offering themselves by their light, by their effulgence to the holy name to showcase this one sound of two syllables. That's their, their, their purpose is all secondary. People look at them as primary sometimes, Indologists and so forth, the Upanishads, and Shankar looked at the Upanishadic aphorisms like Humbramasmi, Tattvamasmi, Tattvamasi as primary, but the Gaudiyas, what do they look at as the primary sound? Omkar, and Omkar here means, means Krishna. So Bhagavatam has brought this out. It is, is also shown that the sound Om is the sound of this person, Krishna. And his name is the sound that, um, by which, if you were to, for example, touch one place in your brain that could paralyze your whole body, and there must be a place like that, where they have it in some kind of like martial arts, you press one place, I don't know where it is, and the guy freezes up and so forth. So this one sound, Krishna, that is anabhati shabdat, anabhati shabdat. The Vedanta Sutra ends with this statement, anabhati shabdat. And the Gaudi people have rendered it thoughtfully like this. By this sound, by sound, and the sound is Krishna, the world, the book begins, janmadhyasyataha, Vedanta Sutra. It says, aham brahmasmi, aham, what is it? Uh, Atato Brahma Jignasu Janmadiyasyataha. Brahman is that. Now we should inquire about Brahman. What is Brahman? Brahman is that from which the world issues, expands. Vedanta Sutra ends with an Abhartihi Shabdat. One of the implications of it is by sound, one will leave the world and never return. The world is coming out of Brahman and by sound, and this sound is Krishnanam, principally, the whole world can, for us, so to speak, then go back. That's what this yoga is about. It's about kind of retracting, if you will, the whole projection of material nature, how it, um, what's the word, not evolves, but Devolves. devolves. The intelligence, the, the, the sense object, the senses, the sankhyas is used to describe this in the Bhagavatam. So the yoga is about bringing it all backwards, so to speak, un, unfolding it. And, and there you are. And in the context of bhakti, there you are in relation to him, the source, Brahman, from whom the world comes and so forth. So, so and then incidentally, of course, not incidentally, but moving on, here on the verse, the verse of the first verse of Bhagavatam starts with the same statement that uh, that the um, Vedanta Sutra starts with. So again, as I've said, the Gaudiya people have, in our sect, they have determined that this this uh, Shrimad Bhagavatam is a natural commentary on, commentary on Vedanta Sutra. And you may think, well, who anyway? We've we touched on this before, but again, to make the point, what is the Vedanta Sutra? Some commentary on it. These, Vedanta Sutra is the first attempt in human society at theology. So, that's pretty important. What is theology? It's reasoning about, thinking about sound information that is said to come from beyond the, the system of material nature. It's not a closed system. It can be influenced from outside. As the quantum people are starting to, you know, reel about and so forth. So that's pretty important and um, relevant. So here's an explanation of that. Then further, this is the, and it's said to be then the limits of theology, if you will, and they will expand further, where they have the greatest potential to expand in the context of explaining 
the Bhagavatam. This is, as I say, our subjective, in one sense, faith, but there's a fair amount of reasoning that if we look at theology and so forth, this is pretty extensive compared to what's out and about and available. So, Janmadhyasyataha, the text says. Again, that's the second aphorism. Our text in Srimad Bhagavatam, after the invocation of Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, begins in the same way, the same, exact same words, Janmadhyasyataha. But the very first sutra, the kind of the um, preface to the sutras is, as I said, Tato Brahma Jignasu. Now is the time to inquire about Brahman, hmm? about the nature of consciousness. It means, as probably used to like to say, human life is the time to inquire about the nature of consciousness. If you combine human life with good association with saintly people who are pursuing that, then your human life is, 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 has become a suitable time in your material sojourn to make this inquiry. And how is the inquiry made? How do we inquire about the nature of Brahman? The Bhagavatam answers that here in the first verse and, in effect, gives a commentary on Atato Brahma Jignasu by saying Satyam Param Dimahi. Dimahi is the method. That means inward going, not outward going. In other words, we want to know about our source, we want to know about our origins, we want to know about the world, where it comes from, and largely in the world today, the way we go about that is by trying to conquer the world, trying to control the world, take part of it, put it inside of a control experiment, derive data from that, then find, then with the help of technology, learn how to manipulate that and so forth. This is a very kind of conquering type of a outreach on the part of human society. We will conquer nature control nature, and that way we will understand nature. We try to understand nature by controlling it. There's a, So again, there's this struggle between us and nature, it seems. They also, everybody in the secular world wants to have all possibilities. They're thinking nature's getting in the way, so let's fight with it. Let's control it. Nature's forcing us to die. Maybe we can cut her off at the pass, you know, and we'll... Would, would tamper with her. So, uh, the approach of the uh, Bhagavatam is, is, is different. The approach of the sutras is different. It says, we will inquire about the, in, in a way that will bring us a comprehensive answer. We inquire as to the nature of our source, our origins, the origins of the world, where is the, what does the world come from? What is it? These are like valid questions in the world today. The Big Bang. And then, you know, there's the, there's the idea, well, the world comes from the Big Bang, and where did the Big Bang come from? And the, the theists will say, if they believe in the Big Bang, which is a interesting conjecture, it's, a, it's an empirically based Conjecture, but an conjecture, conjecture, excuse me, but a conjecture nonetheless that replaced the previous conjecture. If we say, well, well, God, you know, caused the Big Bang, then they'll ask, who caused God? So this, you know, desire for final cause and so forth. And the scientists will say, well, you know, we don't know what caused the Big Bang. But at least we're honest. You guys want to just say God, but you don't know God. You know you can't prove that to us, and so forth. And then again, of course, this, this kind of silly question: Well, who caused God? It's kind of a silly question because we know that the universe has a cause or a beginning. I should say we know that it has a beginning. Well, according to science, that's what they'll say. So we know that it has a beginning. So uh, therefore things that have beginnings have a cause. Therefore, it's reasonable to 
conjecture that there's a cause to the universe. But that doesn't mean that the cause of the universe has to have a beginning. We have no evidence for that. We just know that there has to be a cause to something that we know has a beginning. But that doesn't mean that the cause, we have no evidence to conclude that it has to have a beginning. So there may be things without beginning. But our answer is a little more comprehensive, I think, when we say that's a general theological kind of answer, I suppose. Uh, not that Godia, but not bad. So who caused God? We say, who is God? We talk, uh, who caused the world? God caused the world. Who caused God? So who caused Krishna? We say that Krishna is God. This word means God. So who caused Krishna? Well, we answer very easily. Radha caused Krishna. Caused Krishna. Who caused Radha? Krishna caused Radha. This is the Achinti Beta Beta, the one in the words. There's no meaning to Krishna without Radha, Radha without Krishna. Radha Krishna Pranay Vikati Lenini Shakti Rasmad Ekatmanova Pimuvi Puradeha Umidogatota. So, so at any rate, the statement here, Satyam Param Dima, which is the end of the verse, corresponds with the first aphorism of the Vedanta Sutra, which is, now is the time to inquire about Brahman, by explaining that sutra. And this is how you inquire, Dimahi, through meditation. This is how you make an inquiry that will bring you to a comprehensive answer and understanding as to the nature of your source. It's a very different way of going about it than conquering and trying to control and so forth. But it does involve that type of inquiry rising above the influence of nature, which is what people want to do anyway. They don't want to be limited by nature. They want. They don't want to die, for example. So there are people researching longevity. And... Um, and they don't want to, uh, you know, well, death is, you know, the big one, big limitation. And there's so many in between. So they struggle to overcome that. What the Bhagavatam is saying here, basically, is that method, that approach to overcoming the limitations imposed upon us by material nature will not be successful. In other words, you won't get comprehensive understanding of what you're involved in, of the world, of your source, from that. Indeed, quite uh, uh, the antithesis, the actual source will be repulsed by that, will become more and more obscure, and then you'll develop the, the intellect that philosophize God away, so that you can go head-to-head with Swami, you know, with an atheistic doctrine, and it'll come out like, well, whichever you believe is okay, you know. That's you, philosophy is, of course, limited, but um, the devotee may have more feeling and be more compelling in that way for than one who is arguing against himself, his spiritual nature, and and then again, it's kind of a, in my estimation, a bit foolish because we're foolish. We're both trying to overcome the limitations imposed upon us by matter. How successful have you become? Well, they say, pretty successful. The longevity has increased, you know, and uh, we're not against these developments. It's, it's not what the Bhagavatam is saying. But, but um, in our approach to overcoming nature, we acknowledge that it has its course also. The body will die. We're just positing that you're not the body, and through meditation you'll experience that. In that way you will not die. You'll come out from underneath material nature. It'll still go on and do its thing. But you aren't, you don't have to be identified with it, because you're not it. And the problem is, just like in a virtual reality, you're just plugged into this thing, and, and you think it's happening to you. It's kind of a, I didn't see it, but... Uh, movie, The Matrix, people tell me it was kind of like, maybe some of you saw it. You're plugged into that, and it's ha- it, but it's not really happening to you. You can pull the plug. And um, rather than this big, big battle with material nature, you just pull the plug, sit back, and meditate. 
meditation, as much as it's really quite more than that, interestingly enough, in modern society, um, conjures up this, uh, fosters in people this idea of relaxation, taking it easy, calming down, being more peaceful, getting in touch with yourself, and so forth. Uh, and all that, of course, and much more is true. And the implication is that the other way in which we're going about life is very disconcerting. This attempt to conquer material nature and so forth, this struggle to get ahead and with your career and whatever it may be, it, it, it's all very, I want to speak of, you know, not dying, which is the underlying kind of reality we're, we're, we're seeking. You know, we, we're, we seem to be threatened with non-existence, the potential of non-existence. We don't like that. We, we, we're fighting with that, so to speak. So that's a, that fight, the way that we're going about it in everyday life, is, is disconcerting. Therefore, we need to come to the, to the island here, where it's peaceful and relax. And, and so the Bhagavatam is very inviting. It's saying, take it easy. <laughs> relax. <laughs> Calm down. Tranquilo, as they say in, in Costa Rica. <laughs> so this is its... In brief, of course, here in the first verse only, it's its explanation of the first sutra, the Vedanta. So, this case can be built upon as as we go on as well. The case for that is the Bhagavatam being the natural commentary on these uh, sutras, these codes of Vyas. The Nagodiya Acharyas have done a good job with that, but this is kind of an example of how they have sought to substantiate the statement of the Guru Purana, Artoyam Brahma Sutranam. The Brahma Sutras will be uh, fully explained by Bhagavatam. So, Atato Brahma Jignasu. Now is the time to inquire about consciousness, the, what you are, about Brahman. Atato Brahma Jignasu. Janmadiyasyataha. This is the second sutra then. And this is the next line of the Bhagavatam. Janmadiyasyataha. Brahman which we are to inquire about, which means our source, the center, what we're about, what makes us tick, the why, why I have to suffer when I don't want to. This inquiry arises in human life. We don't find the less complex forms of life asking why. It just, that's life. It happens. You know, we're always like whying about it. A couple of cows get in a little bit of a scuffle with one another. Yeah, whatever. They don't go and write books about it and wonder, well, why it happened. You look at them and it's kind of cool. I thought, okay, it just happened. You know, we, we were troubling ourselves with all this, you know, why it happened, should it have happened, and whose fault was it, and, you know, and so forth. And, uh, this is, so this is what arises again in human consciousness. Why? Oh, it's heavy. It's heavy. They have the how-to questions: how to eat, how to eat, how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend. And they, each species of life has an answer kind of built into it. They have a defense mechanism built in to every species of life to a point, right? Every species of life has some mechanism for defending themselves to a point, and that's a point that should be underscored. This form of life that we are trying to pursue and extend material form of life. That's not possible. To a point you can defend yourself. How to sleep, that's worked out for the animals pretty well. They know how to sleep, how to mate, they know when and how. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend themselves. We have the same how-to questions, how to eat, how to sleep, how to make, how to defend ourselves. But we have the why question as well. And when we only try to answer the how questions, then we, we tend to get them all wrong because they should be answered in the context of answering the why question, which is what we are equipped as human beings to ask and get an answer from. Answers from revelation we have that opportunity to take advantage of that, to hear that sound, om, etc., and so forth. And when we focus our attention on the why question, why am I? 
meaning. That's why in a lot of these atheistic and religious debates you find the theist making the point that science only answers the how questions, not the why questions. I was listening to a debate some time ago and a um, fellow made this point. It's an old point, but it's a good point. And he said, again, that science, to the atheist, he said, only answers the how questions, not the why questions. We need something else to answer the why questions. And the scientist, the atheist, said, there are no why questions. <laughs> there are no why questions. If there are any left, we'll answer them. And, st- and there is no why. There is no, in, the, in other words, there is no meaning to life. And my question was, why do I have to listen to this? <laughs> it was so shallow in my estimation. And here, you know, on the other side, we acknowledge the how questions. But we also acknowledge that there are why questions. And we don't try to do away with them. Rather, we try to bring them to the fore. And the method for answering them, offered in the Bhagavatam, is just a little different than what the way most people are going about it. The point being, however, that if you pursue the question that looms most largely for you in human society, the less important, and they are, questions of how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend, they will fall into place more readily. When we forego the why question or don't go about answering it in a way that will come to a comprehensive answer, then these questions that are solved for the animals become huge problems for us. How do I mate? What season? All seasons? In which way? What? Uh, you know, it's a huge, I mean, the big issue, how we mate, the nature of relationships, and how we, what to eat. I mean, God, there's so many proposals. You should eat this, you shouldn't eat that. How to sleep. I mean, you can find as many pills in the store how to go to sleep as you can find pills for staying awake. Hmm? <laughs> and how to defend yourself. We can go nuclear. <laughs> I mean, it's got to get that bad. In the name of the pursuit of defending yourself, what a mess you make. You may blow the whole thing up. So when the how-to questions become the primary focus of human society, it becomes a bit ugly. When the why question becomes the focus, and then it's pursued through, for example, what's the method recommended in the Bhagavatam, then the how-to questions, they fall into place. And they're, they're just less significant because the why question is, is bringing out the self, which doesn't need to eat, doesn't need to sleep, mate, doesn't need to defend itself. So it starts to experience itself. And the demands that material nature is imposing upon it by identification with material nature are diminished. Therefore, that beautiful section later in this canto of Sutta Goswami, what is the need for clothes when there are, you can find discarded vestments of others along the way? It's just a wrapping, that's all. You know, we've got you know, Tadiya's older brother's, his brother's partner is a fashion designer. So, I mean, this is. The antithesis of what the Bhagavatam is talking about in that section. We'd be horrified to hear something like that. Where there? You can find something to wrap yourself with, you know. It's a <laughs> it's a very different idea here. And it's it's hardly a primitive one, as it might appear. Just wrap yourself in a burlap sack or something or, or what? If just warm, yeah, it works. Yeah. Uh, there's more it's saying there's more important things. And the more important thing is you. And you're not a thing in a sense. You're the subject, not the object. Matter is the object. Things. We are the subject that experiences the things. So we're more important, the subjective self, the experiencer, than the things. So as they say, it's an old saying, but the most important things in life are not things. It's you that's important. But how much we are identified with erroneously with things. It's very unbecoming. And then the struggle that ensues from that, because the more we're plugged into material nature, be sure, the more you're going to have to struggle. That's what it is. And we don't, and we agree with science on it. It's a struggle. And if you want to, you know, punch it out with, with nature in the laboratory, 
with a little technology, go ahead. And we'll take advantage, of course, whatever good things that come of it, but we forewarned that they should be a little careful with that approach. could be problematic. You could unleash some new bacteria that, you know, like they, that company, what is it, Monsanto, you know, they released this, their famous weed killer, Roundup. It's created weeds that now that they're, they're so strong and so resistant that it's getting a huge problem to, to farmers uh, around the world. And they have to create now something to kill the Roundup and and it could kill us, who knows? It's it's so you know, we should be careful because we do appreciate the that there's some place for that for interacting with nature in that way. You know, we don't just say lay down and, you know, let nature take over, just meditate. There's some place for an overt kind of hey, back off kind of approach to nature, but it's not one that seeks to alter the nature of nature. It's, 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 it's with some... You know, human life is the kind face of nature. Therefore, we think everybody should, other species should be kind. We're shocked when they're not and so forth. That's, that's nature without a soul. We've got a soul. I mean, it's got a soul, but it's not awake to it. Soul is awakened in human life, and it's, it's kind. And um, it's... Uh, it's not a fighter, as I say. It's 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 a lover by nature. So Bhagavatam is addressing this. It says then about origins, about Brahman. It says Janma Diyasyataha. So again, this is the same statement of the sutras. It means Brahman, or here, Sri Krishna, who sounds like Om. If you could hear that with your inner ear and more, is the source of the world Janma. Adi, source of the world, yet janma diyataha anvaya diyataha cha arbeya swarat. So I'll explain this in the next next class. We talk for about an hour, right? We'll go further into the first line and see how it's what it says about us and the world and where it comes from. It's basically here, this first line is basically about the Big Bang, if there is one or what, what, what is it? This is another, it's the, the other end, if you will, of scientific quandary. The one end we talked about, which is included here, is consciousness. What is consciousness? Which they will see from a scientific perspective as the pinnacle of evolution. It's supposed to have its source in a big, whatever, explosion. And they can't really explain consciousness. And they can't really explain the explosion either. Either end is a little bit like open to conjecture. I talked a little bit about the, the, the measure of the conjecture that takes place about in, in science and philosophy about the nature of consciousness. It's huge. It's a huge just conjecture. Many, many conjectures, and none of them agree with others and so forth. Hardly a comprehensive answer has been offered. What is consciousness? And on the other side, where the world, com- where the world comes from, and whether there's only one universe or, or many universes, and, and when you go to astrophysics, I guess it might be called, that end of the scientific spectrum, you know, it's said there's one science where the word God never disappears, and that's physics. So it's kind of like, it's a huge question the more you go out there, and the more you go in there, which is physics also, more inside the atom, because it's like, whoa, I'm, I'm getting dizzy in here. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? It's both at the same time, and what's that mean? That doesn't make sense to us from our other observations. I mean, they're not all completely confused because they're able, by scientific experiment, to, to work with the forces as, as they understand them to accomplish things. But again, those things are only so valuable. We acknowledge that they are valuable to some extent. But to become intoxicated by that then, and think that everything will be answered, and all the why questions, and the question about, can I be happy? Why I'm not happy? This is really what we're asking. Why I have to suffer? I want to be happy. Again, the Bhagavatam says, 
You can be happy. You are happy. But you've plugged yourself into a nightmare. Wake up. It's okay. It's just a dream. You're happy. You're safe. You exist. So anyway, here's something about the world. What is it? Where does the world come from? It's just a huge question. I wrote an article about this that was published on The Harmonist about, uh, what was it about? About um, the multi multiverse conceptions that come in string theory in science today about the idea that there are many, many universes, many millions of universes, which increases then the possibilities mathematically for life to be generated from matter, which they think is very remote given the one universe. So they posit many, one, this is one of the things posit many universes to get away from that kind of problem as it would be seen. But if you, if at the same time, if you look at these people involved in string theory, it's, they get pretty esoteric and pretty Eastern in their, in their thinking. Eastern means Eastern spirituality is, comes into, into play. So on that end of the spectrum, as well as the other end, as they would see it, consciousness. Hmm? Go go on the two ends. Go inside the atom. You find uh, uh, more questions than answers there. So, Bhagavatam again is relevant. It's talking about these issues and talking about it from an experiential point of view on the part of the compilers here. They are positing something, and it was their experience. And and whatever they conjectured was based on experience, which is the ultimate pramana. It's not like a have faith type of thing. Again, they experienced that I exist. They thought that that experience was was profound. Again, you can't prove that you exist, but you experience it. So who needs the proof? (laughs) You need the proof that you're experiencing it. So they said, I exist, and I exist as an observer as an experiencer, as consciousness, consciousness is the center. And so their conjectures, which science, as I'm explaining to you, is full of, are not illogical. They're not based, in one sense, empirically, in as much as you cannot prove that you exist empirically. That's a, but again, what is the need to? Overwhelmingly, experience is the final word. What people experience, that they will go with. You can reason to them all you want, but they, they experience differently. They, 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 will, they will stick with that. You can demonstrate to them empirically something else. Still, their, their experience would be more compelling, more powerful. Experience this is the teaching of Chaitanya Charitamrita. Experience is the ultimate pramana. And you can experience, and you can experience yourself. Now, I can't, as I say, prove to you what my experience is, but I can offer you the same experience. And if you experience it, and it causes you to think about it in the same way, then there's, these are not just have faith kind of ramblings or something like that, that should be dismissed and retired to the realm of superstition. No. This is, we have in this, the Bhagavatam has in this way, an important voice in currents and topics that are most important to human society. So, we'll stop there. Any question? Yes. About the experiencing, um, uh, I was listening to a lecture like two days ago of uh, Sri Maharaj, and he said that all, every experience of God should come from above, from lower, uh, from higher to lower. Uh, I was thinking that sometimes there may be a situation when a person just uh, he thinks that he exp- he's experiencing something divine, but maybe he's just imagination, product of his mind, and it creates a, a kind of state of stagnation because he thinks that he's experiencing something, but in reality it's not the the real thing. And how ki- how we can see. Uh, 
the difference between these two and about this uh, state of stagnation? That's what we have the revelation for. Of course, what Sridhar meaning is that if the, if the infinite wants to make itself known to the finite, then the finite can know it. Otherwise not. Not by our own power, so to speak, can we just like break down the gates of heaven or whatever and say, I'm coming in. You know, It doesn't work like that. But other than that, what you're asking, the answer to your question is that we have revelation which articulates the nature of the experience as much as words allow and reasons about it. It explains it. What is the nature of the experience of the self and the Godhead? And and it breaks it down also into different stages even at times in some of the literature. So we are to kind of evaluate our experience in spiritual practice in relation to the texts or we can seek confirmation as to whether our experience is valid or it's what we think it is, I should say. It's, it's, it's valid experience, but whether, whether it is what we think it is by consulting with our uh, spiritual guide. So that's kind of the kind of way to balance that out and differentiate the mind's imagination from the actual experience of the self. But I can tell you another thing. To the extent to which in your spiritual practice you experience yourself, you will know it. And you won't, you won't need to confirm it for the most part. So most of the time, you see, because it's not, it doesn't create doubts. It creates a sense of like knowing. It's luminous. So it, it creates a, a, a confidence, if you will, rather than a doubt. There's a famous story of one disciple of Prabhupada said that when I chant, I, I get surrounded by a blue light. And Prabhupada said, keep chanting, it'll go away. Mm-hmm. So that's not kind of... People, you know, they, 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 they do. They, their imagination works on it and then they, you know, they imagine something and... And even the religious doctrines may arise out of imagination. It's it's whole doctrines. It's quite possible. But the experience derived from spiritual practice is a is a kind of knowing. It's not a kind of entering into a realm of doubt and confusion. So when you experience, you know, and you know because you feel happy. You feel like I could do this all 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 day. This is. A, this chanting is wonderful. You get some taste. It, it, it brings out the self. You feel like, you know, like you could... Um, like, yeah, anyway, it's confirming. It doesn't foster doubts. Does that help? Yeah. Another question? Yeah. I have, <clears throat> I have a question regarding experience as the ultimate truth. <clears throat> in uh, the Patanjali philosophy, they accept three pramanas, as in Vedanta, but uh, unlike at least the general presentations of Vedanta, they they consider pramana to be primary, and they argue like this. And what pramana? Uh, in general, uh, no, uh, pratyaksha, excuse me, experience. And they they argue in this way that that uh, you can hear something from 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 agama or from shastra, but uh, whatever you hear. You can only understand it by comparing it to your experience. For example, if you read that Krishna is a cowherd boy and he's blue, you can only understand something of it if you know what a cowherd boy is and if you know what the color blue is. And even if it would say that he is a very special blue color like a monsoon cloud or something like that, still you only compare it with your own experience all the time. So. Uh, if we would argue that Shastra is primary, how would we reply to this argument? Well, um, I think that um, it's true what you're saying, that explanation. However, we would answer that experience itself in our everyday life will not give us comprehensive knowledge. Whereas in Shastra, you do find comprehensive knowledge. Yes, you will understand it to 
won't extend another three-year experience, but you will also be given in Shastra the means to experience the that reality independent of your material experience. In the beginning, you're going to understand it relative to your material experience. But what are you going to understand relative to your experience? Something that you couldn't understand without the Shastra. Therefore, Shastra is primary in that sense because it speaks about something that you cannot know without it. Therefore, it's primary. You follow? And secondly, again, when you apply yourself in relation to the message of the Shastra as to the means for arriving at knowing, that's when how, how you then know the thing independently of your material experience as it is. Now, with based on our material experience, we know it um, kind of, as you're saying, in relation to our experience. And, but as I've said many times, it's, it's actually a little bit different than that. It's, it's more than that and so forth. And that more and that full experience can't come from just experiencing. So how can experience in the material world be the primary and most comprehensive means of knowing? That's how I would answer. That's in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali. Hmm. When I say experience is the ultimate means of knowing, I mean when, when you get your own experience of the things we're talking about, nothing will be more, will solidify you more upon the path than that, more than the theory of the Shastra, which, which I can speak to you and explain logically to you and convince you to one extent or another and inspire you to take up the path. When you get your own experience, that's what we mean by that then. And it is experience, experienceable, but it's experienceable. Experienceable? <laughs> it's possible to experience. What we talk about there is the soul experiencing itself or the Godhead independent of the experience that is filtered through the senses, through the mind, through the intellect. Okay, we stop there. Gantara Srimad Bhagavatam Kijai.